Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. The lifestyle of the average person, historically speaking, is outrageous in terms of the level of comfort and luxury that's available to people. Just to give you an example, I walked into Ralph's supermarket a while back, and it was around midnight. I had the entire supermarket more or less to myself. Those of you who don't know Ralph's, this is the big supermarket chain here in in California. I grew up in New York City. I couldn't believe it when I walked into my first supermarket in, in Los Angeles. In New York City, if two people are going in opposite directions down an aisle, they can't fit past each other with their shopping carts. The aisles are narrow. In Los Angeles, the aisles are like, it's like a, it's like a national state park, the aisles. You can like go golfing in, in each aisle. So here I am in one of these really large supermarkets, and there are literally thousands and thousands of items What did a king, the greatest ancient king, have in his pantry, in his kitchen? Nothing close to what's in a Ralph's. Do you understand? (laughs) That means anyone who walks into a supermarket today is already head and shoulders over what the greatest ancient king had available to them. I was standing there, and I was just sort of blowing my mind, just like, Again, I was alone in the supermarket, right? I had this huge place, and I, I kind of felt like a king in his pantry. And then I thought to myself, there's nothing in this store I can't afford. Because what's the most expensive item in a supermarket? $100? Maybe? Maybe? So it's all here, and I can have any of it. So imagine it's like 9 o'clock, you're cooking, your husband's cooking, your wife's cooking, whatever it is, and they say to you, oh, can you run to the supermarket? I need some artichoke carts. <laughs> like, the rarest delicacy. <laughs> and then you get into your car, <laughs> and seconds later, it's nuts. But... Because there's always a nicer car, a bigger house, a better thing. But all of us, for the most part, are looking at everything we don't have. And that's what's filling our hearts, and that's what's filling our consciousness. I heard something amazing. I I went to a a lecture that was given by Don Germazian. And they're blessed to have shopping malls, and they give a lot of tzedakah. They do a lot of ches, a wonderful, wonderful family. He said that his father, who's the patriarch of the family, he said to his children, if you want to get a new car, you have to make sure that your brother has a nicer car. You want to get a new house? You have to make sure that your brother has a nicer house first. An amazing, amazing way of thinking. Amazing. Think about the ripple effects of that, that level of consciousness. So... So the idea is, is that we have these things, and how about just arms and legs and eyes? Rabbi Green says, 
when you open up your eyes in the morning, you win. You just won. <laughs> Can you imagine? Like whatever happens that day, you open up your eyes in bed in the morning, you just won. So what I'd like to suggest to you is that there's this baseline of wonder. Imagine just this line just floating, this straight line floating in the air. And all of this miraculous, amazing stuff, all the stuff that we've gotten used to, that we don't blow our minds over. You know, the fourth son, I heard from Reb Shlomo, is the highest son in terms of holiness. Do you know why? Do you know the fourth son is the one in the Haggadah? The fourth son is the one who can't even ask. He doesn't even have the ability to formulate a question. And Reb Shlomo explains, do you know why he's the highest? Do you know why he can't ask? Because he's too busy blowing his mind over all of the miracles around him. He's so in this state of expanded consciousness over all the miracles, all the opportunities, all the love, all the chesed, all the kindness, all the intricacies of reality that he's surrounded by, just blowing his mind. He can't even get to the point of asking a question. So now imagine there's a line on top of that. That's what I'm calling the baseline of wonder. But all of us, for the most part, are looking above that line at everything we don't have. And that's what's filling our hearts, and that's what's filling our breaths, and that's what's filling our consciousness. Oh, yeah, 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 I got all that. I got all that already. Okay, tell me something new. What about all this stuff? And so listen to this, this unbelievable shot. I told you we're talking about matzah, right? We didn't stop talking about matzah, by the way. That baseline of wonder, that straight line, that's matzah. Because matzah's flat. And do you know what happens at the Pesach Seder? You take that baseline of wonder, you take that matzah, and you re-internalize all of the wonderment. Pesach is this opportunity for us to put ourselves back in touch with the fact that God can do absolutely anything at any time, that nothing is difficult for God, and to reacquaint ourselves with the fact that even nature itself can be manipulated and changed in a second. You know, matzah, if it's the baseline of wonder, then it's the dividing point between two things. Maybe that's why it's called the bread of freedom or the bread of slavery. Because if you allow it, if you allow yourself to re-internalize the wonder, it's the bread of freedom. And if not, right, it's that separation. Otherwise, it's everything that I'm missing, which is slavery. One of the definitions of happiness, okay, is the ability to see the good with your eyes that's in front of you. I'll say that again. One of the definitions of happiness is the ability to see the good 
that's in front of you always. And so I think that ties in with the matzah as well. I really do. I really do. What is the proof of whether you actually know something or not? And the answer is if you are doing it. Otherwise, you just know it in your head, but you don't know it in your heart, which means you can know something, but if you're not doing it, you don't know it at all. So, are you in a place of wonderment? Are you seeing the good in front of you? If you are, you are in a place of wonderment. So in other words, it's not just a state of mind. It's not just a state of mind. Rabbi Nachman of Breslov says a very important foundational idea, which is that when a person wants to dedicate themselves to becoming more holy, do you know what they say in heaven? They say, oh, that person wants to be more holy. Let's see. Let's see. We'll give that person a test. That interesting? Speaking for myself, having grown up in, in America in this day and age, relatively speaking, especially in other places in the world and certainly over the course of history, it's a very coddled way to grow up. And you think, oh, I want to do something good. You think everyone should stand up and start applauding, <laughs> right? Throw you a party. This idea is a little bit counterintuitive that in Shemayim, in heaven, they say, oh, this person wants to climb a little bit higher. Let's see. Let's see if it's true. Let's see. Whole, whole nother appreciation, right? Another way to go through life. That goodness is an opportunity that has to be earned, right? Goodness is an opportunity that needs to be earned because it's such a merit. Because when we do something good, we receive tremendous reward, whether it's now, whether it's the next life. You know, there's an opinion that the reason why you don't receive reward for your mitzvahs right away is because the reward for a mitzvah is larger than the world itself. Do you understand that? Can you fit an elephant into a little shot glass? The reward for a mitzvah is larger than the world itself. It's not that God is being withholding or God's in like a grumpy mood. He doesn't want to, all right, come back later. I'll give it to you later. Like, don't bother me right now. When you finish, I'll give it to you. That's not what it is. The reward is so large, it literally can't fit into this world. So when we do something good, we think that we're doing God a favor. This is the attitude most people have. I'm doing God a favor. We have no concept of what's coming our way every time we try to do something good. And therefore, since we are the ultimate beneficiaries, the ultimate receivers, it's actually not counterintuitive. It actually makes sense that that level of reward that level of light that's coming our way needs to be earned. So you say, I just want to do something good. Why is God making it so hard? 
If you think of it in this context, it makes a little bit more sense. Because the good that you're doing, you're going to incur such enormous benefit for yourself, it needs to be earned. Here's what everybody thinks. The Garden of Eden was a cosmic spa, and then we ate from the tree of knowledge, we went against God's will, and then all of a sudden, now we got to work. It was so good, and then we blew it. So that's not it at all. Because before we ate from the tree of knowledge, there's a very clear verse in the Torah that says that Hashem put us in the garden to work the garden and to guard the garden. And the rabbis explain that that was all 613 mitzvahs right there. To work the garden, that's the mitzvah's ase, the positive commandments. To guard the garden, that's the mitzvah's lotase, the thou shalt nots. All of that was given to us before we ate from the tree of knowledge. Do you understand? In other words, let me make it super clear. This entire universe began as a work session. It began as a work session. The reason why that's so counterintuitive is because we've never lived in a more luxury-oriented time in the history of the world, where everything is given to us, where every billboard is another service that's being offered to us to make our life easier, where the message of advertising is, oh, you have to work for a living? Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, oh, yeah, that's so uncomfortable that you have to work. That's the message. It's crazy. Everything is upside down. Everything is upside down. I have to work, and now I have to feel bad about working? <laughs> Where meanwhile, this entire universe was created for me to work? I think that this way of seeing the world is important because... We're so out of whack in terms of our thinking, in terms of the exile. You know, I've, I've said it a million times, but I'll say it again. We think that God is an idea inside of our heads. We don't realize we are an idea inside of God's heads and that God doesn't have a head. And so we've come to this place where we think, okay, God's an idea inside our heads, and then when I do something good... I'm really giving great benefit to God. God is so beyond, 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 beyond. This whole thing is just for us. You know, one of my favorite stories of all time, when we had our first child, with any kids, but, you know, parents like make this like dramatic discovery with the first kid, it's really hard to get them to go to sleep. <laughs> especially when they're babies, you know, or even when they're older. And when they finally fall asleep, ah, and also, I'm not saying anything new here, they require so much intensive effort that you yourself need the break. So you, you doubly want them to go to sleep, that they should be able to have some rest and you should be able to get some rest as well. And like many parents, we noticed that when we would go on a longer car drive, that just the, the rhythmic movement of the automobile would put the child to sleep. And then I got this idea 
why don't I just put him in the car and drive around? Because that seems to be like a really good method of getting him to go to sleep. So I, I load him into the back seat and I start driving. Where am I driving? I'm just driving. <laughs> and I look periodically in the rear view mirror to see if his eyes are closed. And, you know, I don't know for, for you people who live in the Los Angeles area, I'm in like the LA area, I'm driving all the way to Santa Monica, and now I'm driving all the way back, and he's wide awake. And it hits me, he thinks I'm going someplace, and he's just along for the ride. He doesn't understand that this entire enterprise is just for him. And all of a sudden it hit me, that's us and God. We think like God is going someplace and he just dragged us along for the ride. We don't appreciate that the entire creation of the universe was just for us. Just because he wanted to share his love with us. Just because he wanted to give us an opportunity to earn reward so that he could bless us with even more love and even more reward. So you say, well, why do I have to work for it? Why do I have to work for it? Let him just give it to me. Why do I have to go through all this? You know, God's so good, he wants to bless me with reward. So no, let him just give it to me. So the Ramchal explains there's something called the bread of shame. What does that mean? See, like, I would think, like, you know what my ideal life would be? On Tuesday, you give me a million dollars. After the weekend, you give me another million dollars. <laughs> the following week, you give me two million dollars. <laughs> and this would really be a really nice way to go through life, you know? Just one gift after another. But you know something? There's something built into a human being that if you keep on getting things for free, at a certain point, you don't feel good about it. Because every single person has a piece of God inside of themselves. And you know what? God is the ultimate giver. He's the ultimate giver. And so this essence within ourselves, the headquarters of each human being is actually to give. And if we're only receiving, at a certain point it catches up with our essence and we don't feel good about ourselves. Isn't that interesting? Because it's contradicting our essence. So we are givers by nature. Now a lot of us have to get that aspect refined within us. And it has to mature and it has to develop. But it's in every single one of us. So the Ramchal posits the following. He says, God wants to give his creation the ultimate good. What is the ultimate good that God can give himself? So that means that he has to create givers, not just receivers. Because if he just gives, us, gives it to us, we'll receive it, but we won't feel good about it. Which means that he won't have given his ultimate good in the ultimate good way. Like, imagine I've got like, like the finest pastry, the finest pa French pastry, and I lifted it up and I smeared it in your face. <laughs> what 
what I'm feeding you. The quality of this, the finest pastry. Yeah, but I can't receive it that way. When you do the mitzvah of kibbutz ave'em, when you honor your, your mother and your father, like if you want to serve them food, which is a nice thing to do, so you put it on the plate and you put it in front of them. Can you imagine that you put it on the plate and you just throw the plate down in front of them? So technically, did you bring them food? Yes. Technically, did you serve them? Yes. But how did you do it? So God is very mindful of that. God wants to give us the ultimate good in the ultimate good way. And so you know what that means, bottom line? He has to give us the ability to earn it. Because he wants to make us like him, which means we have to be givers also. So, so this entire enterprise, this entire world was just created by God so that he could give us his ultimate good in the highest way, where we're not just receivers, where we are givers as well. And again, the bottom line in all of this is that sometimes when you want to do good, God doesn't make it easy. And that's what makes it so much more valuable. And just like my son didn't understand that this entire enterprise, my driving him around was just for him, so often we don't think that the entire creation of the entire universe was just for us so that God could bless us in the fullest, most beautiful, most complete way. So what are we doing now? What are we doing in the interim? So we just finished Sefer Shmos, the book of Exodus, and we're going into, right now, we just started a brand new book called Sefer Vayikra, also known as Leviticus. And if you look at what's being discussed, it seems to be the same subject. Even though we've changed books in the Torah, which should be a different topic now, it seems like we're talking about the same thing. Meaning to say the Mishkan, the tabernacle in the desert. And just, let me just make the point even stronger. The last five parshas of Exodus, of Shmos, were all about the Mishkan. You had Truma, Tetzaveh, Kisisa. What is Kisisa? That talks about the golden calf, but we say that the Mishkan, the tabernacle, was a fixing for the golden calf. So Kisisa, ultimately, in its core, is about the Mishkan. Then we have Vayakel and Pekude, which are explicitly all about the Mishkan. So you've got the last five parshas, the last five chapters of Shmos, of Exodus, are all about the tabernacle. And now we're going into Vayikra, which is an entire book just about the tabernacle. So what changed? So there's a very, excuse me, there's a very big change that I'd like to point out, because I was thinking about this. See, Vayikra is all about bringing offerings. So now let's make a contrast, because this is going to be important in terms of how we see ourselves, how we see our, the world, how we see our lives. In Exodus, 
It's really about putting together this, this building. Now remember, what was this, what was this building? And remember, it was a, a tent, larger structure than that, and it's going to become the prototype for the Beis Amigdash, the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. But it's something that gets taken apart and put back together. And the sages teach us that the Mishkan was actually a microcosm of the perfected universe. Not only that, but it was a microcosm of the human being. Remember, what do we say? You fix yourself, you fix the world. And that each person has within them a miniature of the universe. Which is why it's so awesome that if you do something good, it reverberates throughout the universe because you're like a fractal of the entire universe. So remember, the Mishkan is coming just to fix the sin of the golden calf. And I heard Rabbi Moshe Pinto said something amazing, that when we chose the golden calf to be the intermediary between us and God, remember all the Torah commentators say it wasn't really idol worship, but we thought Moshe was dead, that he wasn't coming down from the mountain, and we felt that Moshe was that safe buffer between us and God. But God wanted a face-to-face -face relationship with us. And so it was just a test. Like, if I take away the buffer, are you comfortable having a face-to-face -face relationship with me? And we were like, not so much. And there was a massive panic. And so we make this golden calf. So Rabbi Moshe Pinto said something fascinating. He said, a calf is an animal that essentially we put our animal nature between us and God. That, you know, we have like what's called a, a nefesh sichlius, which means this, the intelligent side of our soul. And then we have what's called the nefesh behema, which is the more primal human flesh and blood animalistic side of our humanity. Every person has both capacities, both going on. And what we did was we prioritized or even made our animal side the, the buffer, that which we sought to lead us forward. And so that process of rectification begins with the building of the tabernacle. And so I'll just kind of say my own next thought, which is the way I've been thinking about the tabernacle for the first time is remember, the tabernacle again is a miniature of the perfected universe. And everything about the tabernacle is about putting pieces together. That's what we're doing. We're putting pieces together. Remember, the sin of the golden calf and the smashing of the luchos, of the tablets, of the Ten Commandments, are one and the same. Because why did Moshe smash the tablets? Because of the golden calf. What is the tabernacle? That is a fixing for the golden calf. But you can also say it's a fixing for the smashing of the tablets. Right? What is the smashing of the tablets on a much deeper level? This is an echo 
of what's called Kabbalistically, Shviras HaKelim, that when God made the universe to begin with, he put these light into vessels. And again, there are no vessels. It's not like they're jars floating around in outer space, okay? These are just imagery for us to be able to wrap our brains around. But it's the beginning of the creation of the universe. God puts light into vessels, and the vessels smash initially. They can't hold the light. And all of history right now is gathering up these fallen sparks from the shattered vessels. Every time you do a mitzvah, you're elevating a fallen spark. So when we put together the Mishkan, and that's what's going on in the book of Exodus, that's all well and good, except that's something outside of us. Do you understand? Something exterior to us. Now comes Vayikra, and it's like, okay, you just put together the world? What's your role in this world? <laughs> ah, now it's going from the external to the internal. What's your role in this world? We say that this is a miniature of the whole universe. Well, guess what? That universe includes you. What role are you playing? Because you are immersed in that structure. Wow. So that gets us back to this idea. Is God an idea inside my head? Or am I an idea inside God's head? And God doesn't have a head. You see... Let me put it to you in another way, and we'll go deeper. The original Rebbe asks a great question. After the Parsha that explains what happened on the day that we finished building the Mishkan, and remember, the sages teach that when we finish the Mishkan, which was a miniature of the world, of a perfected universe, that God rejoiced on the same level as he did when he created the entire world itself. So it was an awesomely happy day. With that in mind, there's a big question. The Talmud teaches that when a verse in the Torah begins with the word vayahi, that portends something negative is about to happen. How could it be that the Parsha, Parsha Shmini, which talks about the inauguration of the Mishkan, begins with the word Vayahi. If it was such a happy day. So the Rishner says something absolutely heartbreaking. You ready for this? He says, because the Mishkan was not supposed to be a building. We were supposed to be the Mishkan. Each and every one of us was supposed to be that completed divine structure where the, where the Shekhinah dwells. That it was a building and it wasn't us. So now let's go back to the question. At the end of Shmos, Exodus, we're building the structure. Now we step it up. The idea is that once this Mishkan was built the Shekhinah, God's presence, came down to live with us. Right? You have the cloud during the day, the fire at night, 
But now, how do we live our lives since we're part of this magnificent structure that we keep God here? And that's what Vayikra is addressing. Now, let me tell you something. A lot of people have trouble wrapping their minds around this concept of offerings. In Hebrew, it's called karbonos. Karbonos comes from the word karov. And Rabbi Hirsch says that the reason is because the whole idea of an offering, karov means to come close. So karbonos, which I'll give you a very radical translation now on the other side, not in the vibe that I'm trying to communicate right now. Karbonos are often translated as animal sacrifices. We're translating it in a much deeper way, which is ways of coming close. Right? Because korban has the word karov in it. It is the word karov, which means closeness. So what's going on with this? So there are ways of becoming close. So you say to me, okay, I get it. It's about closeness. It's not about a sacrifice. It's about closeness. But how does bringing a goat make me closer to God? That part I don't get. Okay. So let's cut to a thousand or more years later. (laughs) The Catholic Church was in a lot of trouble. They were completely broke. (laughs) And they were waning in power in terms of world influence. We're talking about the Middle Ages right now. And very interestingly, as the church lost its, you know, control over the world in the Middle Ages, in terms of these crazy, horrific scare tactics that they were putting into people, they needed to assert their dominance and their relevance. So what did they do? They built these huge cathedrals. But what's fascinating is that these giant buildings were being made as the church was losing more and more power because they needed to externally prove that they were relevant and important. But here's the problem. Those things cost a lot of money. (laughs) Where are they going to get the money? They're going broke. So someone comes up with this great idea called indulgences. We will sell certificates where even if you do the worst thing in the world, the worst sin in the world, you can pay some money and purchase a certificate of forgiveness. It shouldn't surprise you that this campaign was a wild success. (laughs) You could literally buy yourself out of any horrible situation. So, the carbonos that we would bring to the Mishkan were not certificates of indulgence. There was an internal process at work. I did something wrong. Or by the way, it could be, I did something right. God, 
I'm so grateful to you because one of the categories, remember you have so many different categories of offerings. One of them was an offering of thanks. It's called a Korban Toda. And by the way, what's very interesting about the Korban Toda is when you brought it, as a way of saying thank you to God, it had to include a lot of food for other people. Isn't that interesting? In other words, the Torah is giving us a very important formula right now. If you really want to express your thanks for God, to God, make sure other people are eating and benefiting. That's the proper way to do it. That your good blessing should also be good news for other people. And they should benefit in a tangible way, which means they should eat something good. Sometimes the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of the Jewish people, would make a mistake. Okay, there was a special korban for that, a special offering for that. Sometimes the king would make a mistake, special offering that the king would bring. Sometimes we would make a mistake. We, we broke Shabbos somehow by accident. Okay, it had to be by accident, by the way. Okay, so then we would bring something to fix it. All sorts of different types of offerings. But it would have to begin with an internal process. You would say, God, I'm so grateful to you. I want to I wanna express and manifest my thanks to you in a tangible way. Oh, there's an offering that I can bring. So now listen carefully. Or, one more example. Oh, I did that thing wrong. You asked me not to do that, God. You commanded me not to do that, God. And, and I, I did it anyway for whatever reason. And I feel bad about that. And, and I, I want to get back on track. And now God is giving us an external way to manifest that internal emotion. And that's what the offering is. So it's just a reflection of an internal process. It's an external manifestation of an internal process. That's what the offerings were. It wasn't about the goat. The Kutzker Rebbe says, a person can even turn mitzvahs into idol worship. How? So I'll give one example. Imagine you have a lulav in Esrig, right? It's Sukkot, and you're thinking to yourself, you're just directing all of your kavana, all of your divine intention to the lulav in Esrig. And it's like, oh, Mr. Lulav, I know you like to be Shaked in this direction and shaked in that direction. In all six directions. It's mamish idol worship. Right? Each of the mitzvahs, no matter which mitzvahs are, Reb Shlomo says they're divine pathways. They're just ways for us to serve God, to walk, to walk down these divine pathways being face-to-face -face with God, and God gives us an action that we can do in order to connect with Him, but we're looking at God the entire time. So things got grim for us, which is that we weren't bringing the offerings in a real way. We thought, okay, I did this, I'll bring that. I got this, I bring that. 
it became this transactional kind of thing. The interior process got lost in the shuffle. And God said, you know something? I'm going to take away the base of Migdash now. I'm going to take it away because you're not, you're not doing it in the right way. These are not external manifestations of internal processes anymore. You're losing the baseline of wonderment, which is to love each other, first and foremost. And if you think about it, how could it be that of the 613 commandments, the majority we can't do today because we don't have a holy temple? Doesn't God want us to do the commandments? So how can he create a situation where we can't do it because, the, because we don't have a, a holy temple? So to me, the only explanation is as follows. God is saying, you know what? When you get it right with each other, then I'm going to let you do the other ones. But right now, it's a little bit too confusing. Too many options. Let me narrow it down a little bit so that you understand what you're supposed to be concentrating on right now. And then when you get that right, then we'll up the ante and we can do more. So that's where we're at right now. Trying to get to that level of the fourth sun. Trying to get to that level of just that baseline wonderment where we're concentrating on everything that's amazing around us and holding on to that. Remember, I think it's the Ramban, maybe it's the Rambam. He says, what is nature? Nature are just miracles that you've grown bored with. <laughs> the rising of the sun has grown boring to me, God. I am bored by the independent movements of my own fingers. <laughs> I am tired by the synapse firing in my brain. I am tired of remembering the name of someone I went to elementary school on the spot when I haven't thought of them in 30 years. <laughs> I have grown bored with that ability. <laughs> who are the people who are alive in this world? The people who are connected to their higher selves. Who are the people who are the walking dead in this world? The people who have cut themselves off from their higher selves. Okay, stop here. Thanks for listening. We do this every week, so join in again next Sunday for a new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.